Howdy, I'm Paul Isaacoder, and this is Author's Dozen, a podcast where I explore barriers to storytelling by writing one novel every month for 12 months. Please enjoy. Hi, Future Paul here, recording a little bit of an intro and outro. You know how it goes. This is an interview. I did an interview with Amy Green, and uh, I'll tell you more about that in the interview, but um, there are links in the description to all of her stuff, and uh, let's get on with the show. Okay, um, welcome again to the Author's Dozen podcast. It has been a while since we've done an interview, and I thought, why the hey not? So let's give a big Author's Dozen welcome to Amy Green. Amy, it's good to, good to see you today. Yeah, good to be here. Yay! Why don't we tell the people a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Amy Lynn Green, and I have my first novel is coming out this November. It's historical fiction set in World War II. And in addition to that, I live in Minnesota, and I actually work at the publishing company that's publishing my novel. So that was a fun story. Very different than a lot of people's publishing experience. Why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about that? I've, I've heard there's a story. Yeah, so it doesn't happen very often that people who work at a publishing company are writers themselves. I think there have been a few people in the history of our company where that's happened. So I work at a place called Bethany House, and everybody there knew that I wrote, and so it wasn't a big secret. Um, at one point, I had I had written a lot of manuscripts that were terrible. And some of them were like mildly less terrible than the first ones, but they were all on the spectrum of not good. Um, and when I wrote this one, I thought, huh, you know, I think there's maybe something here that I would want to show someone who isn't my mom. Um, and so I took it to one of our editors and said, like, hey, can you give me some feedback on this? And it happened to be one of his favorite genres because it's World War II and it's epistolary. So it's written entirely in letters and other documents. And so he said, like, I want to see all of this when you have it ready, um, and I'd like to consider publishing this. And I wasn't expecting that, so that was an interesting process. But um, at that point, he showed it to other people, but under someone else's name. Um, so the group of editors saw it um, and gave it the green light to go to the full pub board or publication board with the marketing team. And at that point, I had to put together like a fake bio for my fake name and <laughs> all of this nonsense. And our copywriter came into my office and was like, I read this manuscript. The main character's sense of humor sounds weirdly like yours. You should tell me if you like it or not. And afterwards, she was very amused to find out that I was the one who had written it. So it went through that whole process and they approved a contract for it. And then they announced that it was me and everyone was very surprised and it was a fun and ridiculous story. I wasn't at that meeting. I usually am. So I had to make up this like awkward excuse for why I would miss like the most important monthly meeting we have. Um, So yeah, a lot of authors spend many, many years going through the process of getting a book contract. So in some ways, I feel like I've skipped a few steps. Um, But it also means that I am very much in the world and have seen a lot of things. I work in marketing. um, And so that's been a fun adventure. You get to practice a little bit of the uh, espionage that uh, goes on in the book. Oh, yeah. That is such a cool story because, you know, like you said, you've you've seen this process happen uh, a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, what would be like a more, quote unquote, normal uh, path uh, through like, for instance, Bethany House, where you work? Right. 
Um, so a lot of publishers um, that are small to medium to mid-size, like very large publishers, you definitely need an agent to get in the door. Um, you're not going to really talk to an editor directly oftentimes. At Bethany House, the editors will also go to conferences and sometimes meet with new authors there. And a complete nobody can schedule an appointment with them and say like, hey, here's my book idea. I've done some research and I know it's the kind of book that you publish and give a pitch for it. And at that point, the editor could say like, hey, this is really interesting. This is like the kind of thing we publish. I'd love to see the rest of this. Um, if you are going through the route of having a literary agent, you usually meet with them or submit um, according to their guidelines, usually on their website. And then they'll say, hey, I think this is something that we can sell. And they pitch it to the editors that they know. Um, so there are a lot more steps in the process than like going down to your coworker's door and knocking on it, which is kind of what I did. Um, but at the same time, editors are people too, and all of them are excited to find a book that they really like. So um, mm -hmm. even though there are more gatekeepers and more steps, it's with the intention of finding good books to publish. So that at least is encouraging. Of the people we've had on, you know, uh, some go more traditionally, um, other others, you know, win a contest, you know, there's, there's no right way uh, to do it. Being a marketing person, what would be like your pitch for the novel that you have coming out? You've set the standard high. So usually when I talk <laughs> about it, I say it's World War II epistolary fiction telling the story of the prisoners of war who worked in Minnesota on prisoner of war camps. It's got escape, it's got drama, it's got um, the, the stories of prejudice um, that you'll find in there, and it's based on the actual history of what went on. Um, so the main character, Joe, is unwillingly sent back to her small town to serve as a translator at this prisoner of war camp. Uh, most of the story is told through her letters back um, to Minneapolis to her friend Peter, who is a Japanese-American who's training to be a spy and a diplomat um, and shares her love of language. And through her correspondence with him and with other people in the town, she kind of comes to realize that the German prisoners of war are actually people um, and that some of the prejudice against them is unfair. Um, but in the process, she's accused of treason. So that's not a spoiler because you learn that in the first chapter. Um, and it's just the process of how and what happens then that the rest of the book is about. Opening it and like her saying with her first letters, like, hey, um, please use this to either exonerate or, you know, prosecute me. And, you know, and it, it, it doesn't say why it doesn't say, you know, when. Uh, so the whole book, you're sitting on this like kind of time bomb, which I think is really interesting. And I didn't know exactly why or how she was going to be accused of treason either when I wrote that. So that's fun. That's interesting. So tell me about uh, how you uh, got the idea for this and what did the planning uh, for this look like? So I am literally a card carrying nerd in that like I have a card to the Minnesota Historical Society in my purse and that gives me admittance to all of the fun historical society places and displays and talks that they do. Um, and there was one at Fort Snelling in Minneapolis that was about the Japanese American translators that were part of the military intelligence services doing their secret training um, in Minnesota. And I thought, well, that's really interesting and crazy, and I never knew this happened. Um, and uh, when I was thinking about wanting to do a story about that, I realized that there wasn't as much conflict there as there needed to be. Um, it was really interesting, but, um, you know, it, 
the peoples who served there were extremely heroic and they did heroic things, mm-hmm. but there wasn't a lot of tension that you could build a story around. And where I found the tension in looking at what else was happening in Minnesota was in the story of the prisoners of war who came mostly from Germany um, and were sent to work on farms or factories in Minnesota because the people there didn't want them. Their sons and brothers were all dying fighting the Germans. Um, They didn't appreciate how well the prisoners were treated. There were lots of incendiary letters to the editor of town newspapers in small towns. Um, Some people didn't mind them. Some people were German-Americans themselves and were friendly toward them, but I I love looking through history and finding the place where there's the most tension. And Mm -hmm. those things, both the Japanese-Americans and their relationship with the United States during World War II, because that was rough, Um, Mm -hmm. and their decision to fight for a country that wasn't willing to protect their rights, Um, and then the tension between the prisoners of war and the people in small American towns just drew me right in, and I thought, there's got to be a way I can make a story out of this. So, um, as far as planning, I'm not that much of a planner. Um, I had the historical facts and the things that happened at particular times, I did a lot of research as to true incidents that happened in Minnesota prisoner of war camps. I had some things that I knew were going to happen, but um, in the process of writing, a lot of the things that I had planned in a very sketchy outline didn't actually end up happening, um, and a lot of things moved around timeline-wise. So I'm sure I gave my editors a lot of things to fix along the way because it was a very rough draft, but it's the best way I know how to write. Yeah. So that's, that's been my experience as well. Um, you know, during this project, just getting a bunch of rough drafts out there. How much changed between like your first, you know, go at the story, uh, versus what I got to read and what the people get to read this November? Um, well, the general plot stayed the same, uh, in my initial feedback from my editors when they're suggesting very big picture changes, um, there was a new character who had several letters in the story who was entirely added. Um, that's a little bit easier to add in in epistolary than it would be in a normal novel because the letters are somewhat standalone and you just have to make sure that the other ripple changes throughout the story are made. Um, Everybody told me they didn't understand the motivations of one of my German prisoner of war character, so I had to work on that because how does one show the motivation that someone has for doing deceptive things when you're taking letters that they wrote down? Uh, We often tell those things by body language and inflection and things like that, so that was really tricky to do. and some of it, the reader is going to have to put themselves in that place and fill in some of those gaps, um, which is what I love about writing, that the readers are contributors to the story. Um, so those were two of the big changes. There were a lot of smaller changes, but overall, it's one of the stories that I've changed the least once I felt satisfied with it. Um, a lot of it was like timeline improbabilities, like... Paul, I live in Minnesota. I should know this. They were like, Amy, the ground doesn't thaw when you're having them start planting. I'm like, oh, yeah. Like, I live here. I should know that. But have I ever tried to grow potatoes? No, I haven't. So I just did what worked best for the story instead of what was real. So yay, editors. They catch those things. 
that is the that is the maxim, you know, right what you know and no potato farming. So yep. that is always like a magical experience for me, like hearing somebody say like, oh, I just kind of, you know, threw this together at the time. And um, because I'll, I'll just come out and say your story is like remarkable and it comes together in this really like all these sorts of terrible and beautiful things that happen at the end that, you know, the rest of the story sort of wraps into. And it all seems like very like diligently planned. Can you account for that? Like, was it just like a good review process? Was it like... I will say to me, some of that like structure that it was given was because it's epistolary. Um, Mm. I'm writing one now that isn't, and it was way harder. Um, I think when every character gets a chance to speak for themselves, um, and as you're writing it, you're doing it in every character's voice. So that's like dozens of people. Most of them will only write one or two letters. Um, but there's a little bit more awareness that you have as a writer of what's happening because you are actually writing the words of the character and just those words. Um, it's also a little bit easier to edit, I think, because like I said, you can add a full character because the letters are standalone um, to do something that you want to set up for the ending um, without having to go back and do a rewrite of the whole book um, because everything is in pieces and those pieces add up to a bigger puzzle. Um, but you can take a little bit out and change it and then stick it back in um, without necessarily changing the whole picture. So I don't know. That's my thought because it was way easier for me to write than anything I've written before. And I think that that's probably why. I love letters. I love writing them. So I think that that came pretty naturally to me too. That is one of the joys uh, of your novel, um, which I don't think we've actually named it. Have we? Uh, Things We Didn't Say? Oh, I might not have said that, but thank you for saying it. (laughs) In things we didn't say, um, you have a collection of like different people writing different letters to one another, um, collected by different people, uh, some that are just like left behind places. Um, you get newspaper clippings. Um, what was that like to write in all these different styles and to inhabit all these different characters? Uh, did you struggle with some of them more than others? I think if I struggled with any of them, it was the ones that they would be hiding their motivation from the reader, but the reader needs that information to follow the story. So it was more a structural problem than a personality problem. Um, A lot of the people had very strong, like Joe has an extremely strong personality, and Peter does too in a different way, and that made it easier to write. And then like just the one-off ones, like the town barber gets to write a letter and I just love him. And you can just be weird and quirky with the one-off ones. So those were actually probably the most fun to write or like the spoiled major's wife who just like gossips and only cares about like talking about the way things were back in New York. Um, I, I didn't feel that was as hard. Um, I will tell you who it was hard for, the people who had to format my book for printing, because they have to use different fonts for all of the different types of letters, like the newspaper articles are formatted differently than the um, letters, and the telegrams are formatted differently, and there are footnotes, and so I am getting them all cookies, because I know them, and this was the hardest project they worked on all year, and like, including like, nonfiction academic things. So, but yeah, as far as the writing process, I found it more fun than that part of it being challenging. Yeah. I mean, you could definitely tell different language styles apart from one another, but just like 
seeing them as they would be in paper uh, is is really cool. So what got you interested in this whole writing business? And, uh, you know, what's what's your journey like before uh, things we didn't say? So always loved reading. And I feel like that's where most writers end up starting is with a love of books. Um, I would hope so. Yeah. I, it's hard. <laughs> I've met a few writers who have said like, oh, I don't read or I don't read in my genre. And I just kind of stare at them like, why and how? <laughs> um, but I think storytelling has always come naturally to me. I've always been very curious about people and, and questions and um, history. So nerd. And I think college was an experience where I was a writing major and I think the best part of that like classes are useful in some ways but the best part was connecting with other writers and for the first time getting good feedback on things that I had written and being able to hear what other people saw wrong with it I'm not actually that sensitive to criticism I love having people tear into stuff because I have amount of distance from my work and I think there are pros and cons to that I don't think it's bad when people are very personally connected to their work, but I'm not usually. Um, so having that was really great. Um, I did, I've did. i done freelance writing, so um, articles, a few short plays, um, especially ones for like kids and teens to use in schools, articles, um, some faith-related articles, um, and didn't really have thoughts too much beyond that, except I wrote some middle-grade fiction, um, when I was in late college, and that was mostly because my sister wanted to be an elementary school teacher, and she wanted me to write something for her. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my first experience with actual book publishing. So those were a lot shorter. Um, They were fantasy. Um, I haven't gone back to read them since then, because I'm sort of (laughs) afraid of what I will find there. Um, But it was a great experience and a great experiment in finishing things. Because I don't know if all writers are like this, but I am very much a, I get lots of ideas, but it's harder to follow through on them. So that's one thing I learned through that process. Right after college, I worked, I applied for jobs in publishing. I really didn't want to live in New York. That just wasn't my idea of a great environment. Um, And so I was looking for ones outside of that. I applied to um, several faith-based publishers in addition to other jobs. And Bethany House was looking for someone in marketing. And I had done a lot of the things that they wanted, like blogging and writing press releases. And so started working there. Great group of people. I wouldn't trade them for the world. And so I've been very happy there. I think this is like seven years I've been working there. Wow. So That's fantastic. Yep. So that's that's the journey. How do you split your time between uh, books of other people, you know, working with those and working with your own work? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do all of my own book marketing and promotion outside of work, even if it's something that if it were for one of our normal authors, I would do it during work just because I just Mm -hmm. need to have that separation between the two of them. It helps. Um, It's weird. It's weird because I sometimes feel like our authors are going to watch what I'm doing marketing wise and be like, oh, like Amy told us to do all of these things that she's not doing herself or like, look at how Mm. badly she flopped that strategy that she tried. (laughs) Um, But, you know, you have to flop things and you have to experiment and you have to fail and you have to modify it and do something again. So I think it's just Mm -hmm. as with writing, you can't compare yourself to other people. You can't um, 
you, you always have to learn from your mistakes and be willing to do that. Um, be willing to ask for help and feedback, um, especially on things that you've never tried yourself before. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of practicing what I preach in marketing and publicity of saying like, hey, all these years I've told you, you don't have to do everything. Now I need to remember, you don't have to do everything. Um, right. And things like that, which I think then make it easier for me to talk to authors and say, you know, I know what I'm talking about here. I have experienced this from your side of the desk as well. What's really great about, you know, the way I've seen you market your book, uh, you've done a lot of really creative things, but they're all in the voice of like what your book is about. Um, they all feel like, you know, Amy Green, the author. And so, you know, sort of uh, what you're, you know, getting uh, with regards to what you're marketing. What is like, you know, A plus number one advice from Amy? Um, I would say do everything with a goal in mind is my number one advice, whether you're new or you've been published for years, because it's shocking to me how many people will say, hey, I saw somebody doing this cool thing. And that must mean that I should also do that cool thing. Um, without an understanding of maybe how that platform works or why it would be good for their audience or any of the or how much time it would take them. They don't know how much time that other author put into that campaign that they did. Um, and so I think for new authors, that looks like sitting down and saying like, hey, what are some measurable, attainable goals to start being in places where readers are um, and readers of the type of thing that I want to write? Um, for some people, that means starting a bookstagram. A lot of YA and fantasy authors are really present there. And that's a way where they can be giving to a community before they have necessarily any content out to promote. Um, I think that's important, too, because I don't think it makes sense. Like, if I'm talking to an author who has 10 books out and I'm like, start a regular newsletter... Um, to tell people about book news. A new author is going to say, okay, cool, but I don't have anything. What am I supposed to do? Take cat pictures? Which maybe, if you can take really <laughs> engaging cat pictures and you're going to write about cats, that's a good thing to do. But otherwise, maybe not so much. Um, so I would say that's my biggest thing. And within that, there are lots and lots of nitty gritty things about evaluating how well something worked and... Um, when to do something by yourself and when to join with other authors to promote something. But I feel like that one just applies to everyone. And um, yeah, to both do something strategically and then also to set a budget of time and not just money and decide what you're going to do based on that and to make sure that you are not shortchanging your writing and your learning about the craft of writing to do marketing stuff because you can't market something that's not good. What does it look like to uh, set time aside, you know, as uh, a person working full time? Uh, what was your journey with that? And, you know, how do you separate, you know, work work from, you know, uh, novel work? Well, so the thing you do is you cause a worldwide pandemic and cause all of your social events to be canceled yes. and use that time to write. So clearly I'm the one behind all of this. Um, in seriousness, it did help somewhat that I was forced to say no to some social events, but mm -hmm. the obvious parallel to that is that in a time where that's not happening for me, you have to decide what your priorities are going to be. And if every night your priorities are watching TV, hanging out with friends, um, whatever else you fill your time with, then you're never going to have time to write. Um, I'm not one of those people who sets a regular time um, and sits down and write. 
I know you probably have to, Paul, with getting as much done as you have in the past year. He, uh, he laughs. He's not sure. It's an uncomfortable laugh. You know, I don't think any, anyone who says this is what I do and so everyone needs to do it that way is just crazy. Exactly. I hear so much of that at writers' conferences. And what I always say is this is what I did. If it's helpful to you, if you want to try it and it ends up working out for you, great. I have helped you. And if you try it and it doesn't work for you, I have also helped you because now you know never to do that thing. Um, so one of the things that some people should and shouldn't do is some people really need that regular schedule and the accountability of that. I am a um, write in the free time, and that's I've had to learn recently to take smaller chunks of that free time and use those as opposed to waiting for, you know, your four-hour chunks of time um, on a weekend, which you'll get occasionally, but those, you know, five random days mm -hmm. you have four hours free, do not a novel make, you know? You cannot right. stitch them yeah. together waiting for yeah. open days. With regard to, you know, goings on in 2020, mm -hmm. um, what are you hoping uh, this book does? It hits on a lot of uh, racial and national uh, conflicts. What interested you specifically in the World War II time period? Were there any stories that just sort of popped out to you where you're like, I just have to do this? That is such a good question. Um, obviously, I didn't know this would be coming out in 2020. Um, <laughs> and I didn't even realize some of the parallels to current right. political situations until my editor pointed out that some things are fairly timely. Um, the questions look different, but the essential question and the story is, what does it look like to treat humanely people who we don't naturally like? Um, and in that case, it's German prisoners of war, um, there are lots of civil, civil liberties issues with the internment camps, um, which is a big stain on our national history. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And so in, in writing this book, I think I realized that while our circumstances change um, and some of the ethical issues that we face seem like they're new, there's nothing new. And people have been having a hard time wrestling with What's our responsibility um, towards other people? What's our responsibility as a government? And they've been getting it wrong a lot in the past as well. Um, so I was really compelled, like I said, originally by the Japanese Americans who served in um, the military intelligence services. And, you know, the reason these Californians and Hawaiians were in Minnesota was because the U.S. decided it was too dangerous for them to be in their nice, warm home state. Um, and so Minnesota was like, we will take them. We don't care. We don't even have, like, any Japanese people in our whole state to be prejudiced against <laughs> them. So they can come up here. And you have some great pictures of Japanese-American translators playing in the snow for the first time. And it makes me laugh, but they look so cold. Um, yeah. But just reading, um, one of the gifts of writing an epistolary novel is that we have the diaries and letters of a lot of those men and the kind of things that they were struggling with, um, which is why I felt comfortable enough to write Peter's character, because it's really hard to represent an experience that you haven't personally gone through. And I definitely have never faced the kind of prejudice that those men faced. But when I was able to read their own words about what that was like and the struggle between I want to prove myself to my country but I also want my country to prove itself to me and it's not. Um, 
a lot of the families of these men going into very high-risk military assignments were in internment camps while they were fighting for their country. Um, Some of them, when they served overseas, faced prejudice from their own comrades in arms. Sometimes they were accidentally shot at because to their fellow soldiers, every Japanese person looked alike. Um, There's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of things to think about when you consider those stories. Um, the prisoners of war were really interesting, too. There are some parallels to how do we treat refugees from other countries, um, what's our responsibility to the world in general. Um, but it was those Japanese-American men who just won my heart because I, I really appreciate the courage and sacrifice that they made during the war. That's a really interesting challenge um, because as an author, you know, you have a life experience, I have a life experience, um, but we're called to write outside that life experience, you know, just by nature of writing different characters and different uh, periods. You you write from the perspective of, you know, uh, people who fought for the Nazis, uh, people who fought uh, for America, but hold, you know, sort of uh, backwards, you know, racial beliefs. Um, How did you inhabit that? And did that make you uncomfortable in any way? Reading the letters from all of those groups of people, like the Prisoner of War Museum in Algona, Iowa, is one of the places that I went to for research. And they have just books of letters from the prisoners of war there. And the curator of the museum who was there, who walked me through stuff, he was a child when there were prisoners of war on his farm. Um, So that was pretty cool um, to get to talk to him, but to hear um, the humanity in the words of these people in their own words was really helpful in writing about them. Um, But I guess in a lot of my favorite books and in a lot of the most compelling movies and a lot of the even compelling conversations I've had with real people in my lives, the thing that strikes me most is that when you talk to people, you can see both that they are capable of despicable evil and also um, just courageous, sacrificial good. And they're sometimes inhabiting the same person um, or this, a different season of one person's life. Um, and the complexity of people to allow that is just amazing. Um, And because I'm a Christian, I see that as like being made in the image of God, but also being marred by the fall and by sin. Um, And I think there's a darkness and light and that tension that we see in fiction and in ourselves, if we're honest, is something that shows up everywhere. So it's not it's not as hard for me to write a character who's racist because I know that I have been racist or in some ways I have treated someone in a way that they didn't deserve or I've made judgments about people without actually seeing Mm -hmm. them as individuals. Um, So just as I think you have to draw from the good experiences in your life, I think being honest about the parts of you that you don't like and that you wouldn't necessarily show to other people, um, you see them in in your own heart and your motivations. Um, that was a really philosophical answer uh, to a question that didn't necessarily need to be philosophical. So yes, sometimes it was hard. And I would say that this book being an American Homefront story was a lot less dark and oppressive to write. Um, I know I've had some friends who have written stories um, that deal with concentration camps and a lot of very heavy evil that just it's hard for them to inhabit that place for too long. 
Um, this was a little bit lighter. Um, there was a lot more I could identify with, um, a lot of very petty and human emotions that I have experienced directly in a way that I might not if I were writing about an SS officer in Poland. Um, but um, so that's why I know that I am capable of most of the great things that my characters do, but also a lot of the petty and cowardly things that they do as well. I wouldn't uh, necessarily classify your novel as like cozy, you know, but it was it was very down to earth. At the same time as it's being very witty and very, you know, interesting, it's also um, very relatable. Have you always been attracted to more quote unquote normal uh, subject matter? Is that what you read? Oh, I read all the things. Um, <laughs> I can be reading. This is the problem. There are too many good books. Um, so I'll read, you know, crime fiction and fantasy and middle grade you know, silly lightheartedness, um, and a lot of historical fiction as well, because I think it's really good and exciting to read in the genre that you write in. Um, honestly, like fantasy intimidates me <laughs> with historical fiction. You have a little bit more of a starting point. Um, I love reading it. I think it might be fun to try someday. Um, but I think that I like having the grounding of reality and I like that, Again, I like seeing the parallels between history and current events, which you can also do in fantasy, but you have to make up whole-scale cultures and societies in order to make those parallels, and I am just too lazy for that. <laughs> like, everybody thinks that fantasy is easier because you can just make things up, but no, that is not even close to being true. Um, you have to make everything up, and you have to do it well and consistently because... If you're writing about people and cultures, they follow particular patterns and you have to create them out of nothing. So mm -hmm. I love historical yeah. fiction. I love history. I love the nerdy, small, little interpersonal details of it. Um, I'm happy to be in this space. Who knows what I'll write in the future, but the next book is also historical. At this point in my project, uh, I'm writing uh, something that's sort of semi-historic, 17th century Navy versus UFOs. Really? And uh, it's required a lot of uh, going back and looking at like, how do these things operate? And, uh, you know, trying to get the mindset of uh, uh, the days of yore. What would you say uh, to someone who's trying to do uh, what you're doing, uh, writing historical fiction or historical inspired fiction? How do you research? How do you get into that subject matter? I am about as organized in my research as I am in my writing. I do a lot of it, but I don't necessarily recommend my methods in, in so far as some of it is on the go in the middle of writing, um, some of it is scattershot, but I would say things that I could solidly recommend to other people as opposed to just here's my experience, you can do that if you want to. Um, it's great to join communities of other writers in the same era that you're writing. A lot of them are better at, than I am at research and people will ask extremely obscure questions like how long would it take for a package to get from Germany to England? Could they even do that? What if it had a gun in it? Would it get confiscated? All of these things. Um, so that's helpful. Um, there are a lot of research, research on etymology and when certain expressions and words came about. Um, but I love primary sources. I love digging those up wherever I can. I have World War II, so I'm lucky I'm not doing like ancient Babylonian, which would be a lot harder to find primary sources. Um, so wherever you can find letters, um, diaries, uh, e newspaper articles, um, 
novels that were written at the time to get a sense of some of the expressions or movies, I guess, if you're me and you're in the 20th century. Um, those things are really helpful because it, you're not re relying on other people's interpretation of the past, you're relying on people's interpretation as it happened. Um, and I mean, I like usually books will have a lot more helpful content than googling things. You can google your way into some some helpful sites and I have and that has been great but especially when I'm working with a very specific aspect of history like the prisoners of war there are a lot of really good books that go into great depth about what life was like on a daily basis that I wouldn't have gotten just from um, looking online so Go books, yeah. go libraries. I'm a fan. <laughs> I'm also a fan of the internet because research would have been 80 bajillion times harder before this. That was a really fun part of your book. Just the uh, the cultural references that these people are living with. Um, the uh, Just the things that we sort of take for granted. There was a lot of mention of like, I forgot like halfway through the novel, like, you know, certain people probably don't have a lot of electricity. Hair dye was like a strange thing, you know? <laughs> and it was, a, you know, some things that are considered shocking by that culture uh, that to us would seem just totally normal. And some things that they consider totally normal that are totally shocking to us. Like uh, a lot of people's attitude about, not to give too much away, but the sort of main relationships and romances in the novel. I went into the novel expecting it to be one sort of romance and it turned out to be a completely different kind uh, <laughs> with all sorts Yay. of different. <laughs> yeah. So um, because and and I think uh, I think you play around with that uh, in really interesting ways. You know, there is a lot of conflict between uh, what people expect Joe, the main character, to be and uh, what she ends up being. Who most influenced uh, uh, Peter and Joe, your two main characters? I mean, Peter was just all of the men whose letters and diaries I read, um, but like better with people than like mm -hmm. a lot of people I know. Um, I don't know. I didn't, I, I don't really picture people as I write them. I don't necessarily cast them in that way. What I usually do is I look at what they have to do and I think who would be least qualified to do this. Um, which is why you have Joe, who's like terrible with people and super blunt, and they're like, oh, we need you to be good PR and to communicate well with the town and the prisoners of war because you're the only one who knows German. Um, so it was a little bit, little bit less someone I had in mind and more what did the story need um, to make it harder for her to do the things that she was supposed to do. Yeah. That's interesting. So the book is uh, very charming and very funny. What do you what do you really like about, you know, the humor in this book? It was just fun to have a character who just says stuff that could possibly offend people. I think my favorite parts to write <laughs> and the parts I found the most funny were when Joe was writing something and then she would cross something out and try to be more tactful. But you're still like, tone it down like five more levels, girl. Like... And that you can do that fun strike through text um, and get to see the difference between what she wanted to say and what she actually did end up saying at the end was really fun for me. Um, I don't know what to say more about that. Like, I didn't really go through it and be like, okay, how can I insert some jokes? It was just more like, Joe is just sassy and she gets to do a lot of the talking, so she's going to say funny things. 
are there other things like you add to your stories that just sort of like just to amuse yourself uh like what is what is some of the most like fun uh parts of this book to write for you oh you would ask that question so there are a few like easter eggs in there that only a few people will get and one of them is my work nickname is arsenic amy it is a very long story how that came about, but usually, generally, the principle is if anything suspicious happens at work, everybody just assumes that it's me, and oftentimes when I'm talking, the, the conversation will turn to some sort of crime or violence or, like, I don't know. I don't know how this happens. I am an extremely peaceful person, um, but that happens, and so that's my nickname, and so I worked arsenic in just the word arsenic in there, into the book, for that reason. Yeah. Um, because I was just amused. The next book that I'm working on has a very big inside joke in it as well. So I feel like this is just a thing that writers do. Um, I mean, more adorably, um, when I was, before I was dating my husband, wow, publishing is really slow. I was writing this book (laughs) before I was dating the person who I am now married to. Um, but we had had some sort of conversation with a bunch of friends and, were texting about it afterwards and he had this like really great quote that he said about like how it's important not to like to understand that people are fallible and as complex as we are um and I was like wow this is really profound I'm just gonna give it to Joe at the end of the story to summarize (laughs) one of the things that she learns and as my editor was going through it she was like I love this line this line is like your best line in the book like it's so (laughs) good at summarizing I was like ah I didn't even write that um so that's kind of a fun thing if you knew it as you were going through it to be like oh one of the main like points of the book is one that Amy didn't even write she just shamelessly stole it it's called curating. You curated it. Curating. You, <laughs> I appreciate you, you f- that term. <laughs> we um yeah, it's not stealing. It's not uh it's not um plagiarism. Mm-hmm. It is curating. So, Excellent. Very good. So uh, you mentioned this took you like a really long time to you know uh, from the first time you had the idea to uh, when the book finally came out. What does the editing process look like for you? You mentioned in the book that you had you know some people. Uh, who have more knowledge of like Japanese culture or, you know, uh, different life experiences. You had them read the book and make sure it was accurate. What are some other like, uh, you know, people or, or uh, filters that you put the book through to make it what it is now? Yeah, sure. So everybody's process looks completely different. Um, but what I usually do is I have my writing friend who's also my was my college roommate um read through it when it's in its roughest form and tell me hey big picture here are the things you need to change Uh, my mom and sister also read it at this point they are reading it almost entirely as readers though and not with quite as much of a critical thing so their comments will be like this chapter was boring or like i didn't even understand what you were saying right then which is also extremely useful. Um, they don't have to be able to tell me that like a character archetype isn't working or whatever. Um, and then um, during the process of doing those revisions, I just rewrite things constantly. Um, I'll throw out, I, I usually cut it and save it in another document in case it turns out that I need some of it later on. Um, but constant rewriting. Um, Oftentimes I'm doing more research as I go, so I do some ahead of time and a lot of things I do as I go. Again, would I recommend that? Not necessarily, um, but it works for me. And um, I had 
a friend of mine who was a German exchange student in my high school who, through the wonders of Facebook, I was able to connect with and ask if she could read um, the portions that included German words and German cultural references. There are a lot of fun idioms and such just to make sure that these things that I had found in research sources were actually accurate, um, and also just to give me feedback on the tone and whether she felt like I was being fair, that sort of thing. Um, my editor had a friend who went to her church who is Japanese-American who read it over both for language and for um, how she felt about the sections with Peter and his family, um, which was also really helpful. Um, and obviously all of my editors were giving comments at different stages, so big picture things first, smaller plot holes and things second, and then final pass was more little things like, you called this party two different things on different days, and so on and so forth. Um, I think for me, one of the more helpful editing constructs that I use, especially for epistolary, but I think it could apply for all authors when it comes to dialogue, is I did what I call the theater edit, where I made a list for every character of how they would phrase things, um, what things would be unique to them, um, and like who I would cast as them, what, how long their sentences would be, just to structurally distinguish them from one another. Because when you're reading epistolary, I, I have read a number of them, and some are brilliant. I love the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society, which is the longest name ever, but a delightful book. Um, and some of them, you read them and you think, yeah, the same person wrote all of these letters. Like, I am not fooled by the fact that they are signed with different names. I know. They all sound like exactly the same person. Um, so that was helpful to me. And I feel like with other authors, that could be helpful mainly with dialogue or even things like what body language does one character have that another wouldn't, um, things like that. But that was super fun because then I got to make decisions like, okay, well, this character is the only one who gets to use like this level of vocabulary words or like this one uses so many exclamation points my editor had to put a note on the style guide to our proofreader to be like please don't change these like i know it's a lot of exclamation points but that's supposed to be there it's not a it's mistake. the character who has the bad grammar right. not me. man <laughs> like if i could use that more often that would be so great but yeah things like that and things like style and variation of that those are the very detailed things that I think are the most fun when you can go through and read all of the things from one character and make those little changes that hopefully the readers will never notice that I did those things like is anyone going to really notice that like Joe always talks about herself first and then talks about Peter and Peter almost always asks questions about her first and then talks about himself but that's just who they are and that maybe subtly matters in the flow of the story even if you wouldn't identify it on reading it so all the little things matter but also thank goodness for people who are not me because they saw so many things that I never would have seen to fix I am so grateful for them yeah so now you've been on uh both sides of you know the editorial um system so You've been the one being editorialized and you've been the one doing the editorializing. Say, you know, someone in our audience is, you know, uh, going to make comments about a book or is, you know, trying to improve something that they've written. Um, what's some of the best uh, advice, you know, that you've learned through this? 
I would say that when somebody points out something that's wrong or isn't working for them, they're almost always right about that. Sometimes they're not right about how to fix it. Um, I made some changes that my editors requested in a different way than they suggested as a possible fix, but their instincts were instincts that then when I was like, I don't know, is this really true? Then like my mom would say the same thing and I'd be like, okay, well, clearly you have good instincts on that. So listening to and accepting advice while still feeling the creative control to fix that in a way that works for you and your story, I think is really important. Um, And don't be afraid of giving that out. I know that can be really hard if you're just starting out or if you are, again, particularly close to your manuscript. That's a good thing. There's probably a passion that those people have for their work that I probably don't have because I don't (laughs) feel that close to it. Um, But overcoming that and giving it to people who are not there to tear you apart but are there to make things better, I think is a really good distinction. The story is for the readers and not for you to say something. So like, this is true of marketing too. This is a big principle that I put forward in marketing is it doesn't matter what you want to say. It matters what people are interested in listening to. Not in a manipulative way, but just in a way that if you have something that you absolutely love that isn't working for readers or isn't serving the story, then you need to cut it because it's not about you. It's about the story. Um, And that can be hard to do. Like I say it and it seems obvious like, oh yeah, of course I love the story. But then you have this beautiful metaphor or like this character who you think is hilarious, but who is upstaging your main character and you have to cut them. Um, You don't always have to. Sometimes you just need to make your main character better so that the minor character doesn't upstage them. Um, But being willing to do that to serve the story, I think is an important thing to keep in mind. So say somebody sends, you know, Amy uh, a book or something and says like, hey, you know, uh, tell me what you think about this and what you would change. What would be now having gone through this, what would be, you know, your sort of approach uh, to that sort of manuscript? I mean, I do this like a lot. So this is not as hypothetical as it may already have seen. I mean, I always like to affirm the things that are good because I think it can be easy for people to, especially if the manuscript is too long or whatever, to cut out the things that need to be in there. Um, And um, I guess after that, the, I, I, depending on what stage the manuscript is in, I guess, um, can I say things that are both attainable to the author where they are in their writing career? Like if you're just starting out and this is your first time and you're giving something to me, I'm not going to get nitty gritty on the things to change because, um, it's not going to be helpful to you. It's going to be intimidating. You're not going to want to do the rewrites. You're going to walk out of there. Um, But if you're coming to me with something where you've done a lot of writing and I can tell that you really want to dig deep on this, I'm going to give more specific and maybe even more difficult things to rewrite. Um, I always try to phrase things as a Like, I I will say when I'm like, this is confusing. I know this is confusing. I know this would confuse other people. And when I'm like, you know, to me, like, I'm having a hard time with this, but check with someone else because Mm -hmm. I think that's important. And I can tell the difference between I'm pretty sure this is just not good writing. And when I think, you know, maybe this is just hitting me wrong and you should check with someone else to get confirmation. So, yeah. Those are helpful, I think, if you're giving feedback to other people. 
always compliment people, always know the difference between what's objectively wrong and what's just your opinion. And always, oh yeah, the other thing is, always make sure you are responding with critique from the point of view of the genre. So don't, like, if you're used to reading fantasy and you're giving critique of a romance novel, and you're like, I knew the whole time that these two characters were going to fall in love. I mean, like, all the romance readers know that too, and they still love it. Sometimes it'll just, like, say so on the front or the back of the book. Like, you know, just expect these people to, you know, work it out. So. Or it'll have, like, a rhetorical question that you know the answer to. Like, will they find true love or will their secrets keep them apart forever? No, they're not <laughs> going to keep them apart forever. This is a romance novel. Why would the book exist if these were just, you know, people who went their separate ways? Right. But what else are you reading that's uh, really exciting for you right now? I mean, I am eagerly awaiting Rhythms of War by Brandon Sanderson. Um, I haven't read Oathbringer yet because his books are massive doorstop novels. Mm -hmm. And I know that if I start reading, I won't stop. But I will before it comes out in November. Um, delighted by those. I also love the, and I just got the latest and read it in literally a day. Um, Louise Penny has detective novels called the Imp Inspector Gamache series. Just read the latest one. She does such a great job of making a crime book compelling while also being deeply about human relationships which i appreciate so plot and character driven hugely um and uh the latest one is called all the devils are here and then i guess more in my genre what i'm reading now is uh the london restoration by rachel mcmillan and it's uh partly told in flashbacks during the war where um, a man and his wife are both he is um works um, on the front lines um, as a medic and she is doing secret work for the government and after the war they still can't tell each other everything and those secrets are keeping them apart so it's partly like espionage spy partly relationship drama i'm just loving the mix of both of those um, it's really really a fun read i can't say it enough i i think your book is this instant american classic oh, um, cool. that i've already uh bought for several of my family members what are you working on right now do you see yourself staying in this historical field? So I can tell you about the next book, which does not have a title yet because I just turned in the very rough draft a few weeks ago. Um, Congratulations. Thanks. It was, it was a rough ride. Um, but that one is also set during World War II and also in the American home front. I don't know that I will stay there forever. I really like historical, but this one, the uh, idea just fell into my lap while researching my first book and I got really excited by it. So the second book is a mystery um, in that it follows a conscientious objector who um, is a smoke jumper in the Pacific Northwest. So instead of fighting in the war, um, there are several men who instead volunteered to be parachuted into wildfires because that sounded less like dangerous than fighting, um, which was exactly the point for them. They wanted to prove that it wasn't cowardice that was keeping them away from their war. It was a choice of conscience for them. Um, and the rest of the story kind of follows a mysterious fire that injures um, one of the men and something that looks like an accident that doesn't seem to be. Um, and the questions that um, this smoke jumper's best friend, also a conscientious objector, asks. And then the conscientious objector's sister shows up 
and she is in the Women's Army Corps. And so, and the opposite extreme, um, but she also wants to know what happens, and she is not leaving until she gets answers. So putting the two of them together as an investigative team was very fun. They have very different ideals, um, and yeah, just playing around with that idea. The first book takes place over the course of a year. This book takes place over the course of a month. So it's a very different kind of book to write, but also extremely fun in its own way. You know, I'm I'm broadcasting right now from uh, the the giant smoke plume that is the Western United States. Yep. I uh, dearly hope uh, that you inspire some firefighters and uh, that you continue writing uh, great novels. I will be linking uh, your book. It comes out uh, when? Uh, election day this November. That is a Great. Tuesday. What day is that? I don't even know. <laughs> It'll, you know, uh, something tells me we were, we will remember it. Yep. So, uh, great. Set your calendars. Um, I'll be linking to that in our description and, uh, Amy, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. Yeah, this thanks was, for your uh, great fantastic. questions. I had fun and yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah. And thank you so much for your fantastic book. Honestly, uh, I'm I'm so excited to see it come out and uh, to see people rave and review and whatnot. So um, thanks again. Really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Oh boy, that sure was an interview that we did. It's really good, isn't it? Yeah. And uh, her book is really good. I'm not just blowing smoke. You know what I mean? It's a, it's a good book, so check out uh, the description for all the links. And if you liked anything about this episode, or you want to hear more, or you want to see uh, what the Authors Dozen podcast is all about, you can head to www.authorsdozen.com. There's all kinds of good stuff over there. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, you can also share this episode with your pals and uh, rate it on iTunes. That helps us out a lot. Many thanks again to Amy Green for doing this episode. And uh, yeah, thank you for listening. So long, then. Goodbye! Woo!